Welcome to Nesta's Future Curious podcast with me, Nigel Campbell. In each episode, we'll be joined by leading thinkers and experts on a massive range of exciting topics. Together, we aim to stimulate the parts other podcasts can't reach with ideas, provocations and glimpses into our shared future. Well, the great news is that we're all living a lot longer. In fact, longer than uh, in human existence ever. But it's also well known that that's mainly due to improvements in things like healthier uh, living, uh, better lifestyles and access to medical advances and the NHS. And the next big thing in this century is going to be digital technology. It's going to have a big effect and hopefully improve our well-being and delivering healthcare more effectively. But at what cost? Artificial intelligence, algorithms and apps offer us the prospect of great things. But what about the price of your data? Where is it going? And are we happy with that? Well, joining us to discuss this in the studio is uh, Ivana Bartoletti, Privacy and Data Protection Professional and Chair of the Fabian Women's Network, and also Sinead McManus from the Health Lab at Nesta. Ivana, uh, Sinead, welcome to the programme. Thank you. So there seems to be a lot of hype about artificial intelligence to improve healthcare at the moment. Maybe we should start by talking about some of the areas in which uh, health, where AI and machine learning, etc., and algorithms are really potentially a, a big game changer. Yeah, um, I'm happy to take that, Nigel. Um, so I think at, at Health Lab, we're seeing a couple of areas that we think there's real promise for artificial intelligence. The first one is very much um, is becoming a, a more personalised front door to the NHS. So particularly in sort of advice and be able to triaging um, people getting the right care um, and the right advice at the right time. So the research shows about 20% at the moment of GP appointments are for minor medical conditions that could probably be dealt with elsewhere, maybe by a pharmacist, maybe by just taking some rest and sitting on the couch. So we really keep keen on seeing how artificial intelligence can really um, triage how people are getting access to the the right services without sort of burdening uh, an already overburdened uh, GP system. Um, the second one that we think is really exciting is looking at um, preventative and proactive care. So how can we use um, artificial intelligence algorithms to perhaps predict um, when somebody is going to get ill before they get ill? And this is particularly, I think, relevant in um, the care at home sector. So how can we pre- prevent somebody maybe having a fall and then going into hospital or getting some sort of infection? And I think a third area that I think has got quite good promise as well is um looking at kind of second opinions or um, reducing unwanted variations. So um, the quality of care, of course, around the UK is fantastic with the NHS, but unfortunately, variations still exist. So how could citizens use um, um, apps and algorithms to showcase where maybe they're not getting the best care compared to other parts of the UK and really campaign for and make a a case for for getting another opinion on their care and their treatment? Sounds like you know there's so much potential out there, but you know alongside that there's quite a lot of worry about how we're sublibing decisions and that personal interface and those sorts of things to uh, algorithms and, and and stuff like that. Is there a sense in the medical community and I suppose the IT community as well that there are certain things that that algorithms can do better than doctors? Well. Um... First of all, I agree. I mean, the potential of artificial intelligence in health is fantastic. And the potential it holds is just incredible in terms of detecting, for example, breast cancer much earlier. And there is no doubt that uh, using loads of data that is available um, has the potential to make diagnosis very 
precise to identify diseases and uh, illness before they manifest. Um, and I do think the machines are probably, in relation to these specific activities, even more effective than humans. Um, and this is important. I mean, machines working alongside human beings um, are a crucial factor for better healthcare, and they can really augment the capacity and the ability of a doctor. So I think if we consider and if we have, if we think that machines and doctors and radiographers and nurses can work together, not just one replacing the others, but really working together. That's the kind of direction that I think we should be looking at. How can a machine augment the ability and the capacity of a doctor to really make the right decision, personalise healthcare in a way that suits the particular individual? And this is incredibly beneficial for, for health. Of course, we need to have a collective conversation about all this because we are assuming um, that it's all great and it is mostly for the good. But we have, I think, to have a conversation with the patients, with the doctors, with the radiographers, with the nurses, with everybody, I think, to try and understand what is the trade-off. Um, I, For example, there's one issue that is I am particularly inter interested in, um, which is um, the idea that, for example, um, if a particular machine, a particular algorithm, by analysing the way you move and you behave and do all the time, is able to predict that you will have a particular disorder or disease manifesting in 10 years' time, that doesn't impact only you as an individual, but it also impacts your family, your children, because they may have the same disease as well. Now, this is good from one side, but on the other end, you are breaching to an extent somebody else's privacy, not just the individual that you are looking, analysing and observing. So, and of course, in health, I think the trade-off between sharing your data and the benefit of sharing that data is much easier than in other sectors like digital advertising. But still, we do need to have a conversation about do we want this to happen? Do we want to know what we're going to have in 10 years' time? Do we want to be able to, to share so much and, and be analysed to that extent? And I think this is a conversation that is ethical, moral, and it can't be done by doctors alone. It can't be done, of course, by tech companies alone. And it has to be done by us as a community. Yeah, I completely agree, Ivana. I think there's a related issue to do with the, the value of this data. If we look at the NHS, the amount of um, data points that's created about us every day is in the millions. And it's incredibly valu uh, valuable data. And the NHS alone cannot do not have the... The, the workforce or the skills to analyze all this data. So we can see them partnering with tech companies. For example, the Google DeepMind partnered with the Royal Free a couple of it years ago, well which um, and also they got into a lot of trouble with with a big data breach. But but this example really illustrates if we're if the NHS are, are partnering with tech companies and, and giving away or, or um, this valuable data that tech companies then can analyze and then sell back to the NHS as products and services, then there's something very interesting there and, and a debate that we need to have as citizens. That's where, where, where's the value in all this massive healthcare data that we as citizens are generating that then tech, company, tech companies can then have massive profits off while our NHS is struggling financially. So I think there's a huge ethical um, debate there to be had. And of course, the NHS famously is not great with data. 
is it? And, uh, you know, we've seen these massive failures of uh, integrated personalised and, and computer systems, which just have not taken off and lot, cost a lot of money. And I think the worry is, you know, it's not like we're dealing with some very well-organised bank that's got brilliant uh, IT systems and, you know, we keep all our personal data in there. There's a, there's a real worry, isn't there, that, that our creaking system is not going to be able to handle this new new form of, of, of valuable data uh, about us. And, and that's a, a real concern, I guess. Are there any, you mentioned there, Ivana, about um, diagnosis and being able to process scans, you know, thousands of times a second and, and work out much, perhaps much more accurately and quickly where the anomalies lie. And that that area of technology seems to be great. And I don't think anyone would really particularly argue with that. Where are the kind of grey areas where we're thinking mm, a bit queasy about how algorithms are, uh, yeah. are, are, are helping us to be I mean, better. I don't think there are any particular uh, applications that are queasy or, or they're complicated from an ethical perspective per se. Um, I mean, the big revolution is big data. The big revolution is you can use all big data, all the data that we produce. And with this big data, you can identify patterns. Um, you can identify, you can analyze this data. For example, if you have an elderly person living by themselves in a home and you can analyze their movements, then as soon, the, as soon as the movement is slightly different from the usual, you can trigger an alert saying something is happening to this person. So you can support independent living, particularly for the elderly, which is very much needed. Um, so in itself, I think we don't know how far technological development can go, which is to an extent is good because the potential is is fantastic. I think the main issue is is really to um, uh, th there are complexities that all this is is bringing. One, for example, this as, as was mentioned before, what is the relationship between the public and the private sector? And of course, this is a new. Um, is a, is a new dimension um, in terms of in relation to data specifically. and But it's a new dimension, not just in the NHS, but with big data, it's a new dimension everywhere. I mean, let's think about transport and, and, and when you have sort of AI uh, autonomous vehicles and what's the, the relationship between that and, and the provision of public transport. You know, the relationship between private and public will be changing. But the other big thing is in relation to, um, so to, to, to the element of, of sort of the personal data involved. And we do need to start thinking about, do we need data trust? Do we need other uh, uh, ways to, uh, to, to think about personal data? And the last complexity I think that this is bringing is, um, is, uh, is around the so transparency. I think patients would be very happy to share their data if that data is for um, improving health. Um, probably healthcare is the sector where patients are more open to share data because the trade-off is clear, it's better healthcare. But they would be less happy if that data is then used by an insurance company to determine their insurance premium. If that data is then used for personal advertising, if that data is used for another purpose. So the transparency element and how we achieve that transparency in a way, in a world where people don't even read the privacy notice correctly, so because it's too complicated. So how do we achieve that? And I think this is where 
I would like to start seeing a little bit of regulation, not heavy ones, but a little bit of regulation in the form, for example, of do we introduce a data trust? Do we introduce codes of practices? So there is a so organizations um, and third parties accessing this data, they have to do so in uh, compliance with a specific code that is for the health sector. Um, but I think this is the sector where the, the health case where we do need some some sort of regulation uh, in order to govern all this. Is this something that Nesta's been looking into? Shai? Definitely. Regulation is an area that we've been thinking about a lot at Nesta. We um, have a, a whole theme of work around what we're calling anticipatory regulation. So the, the, the problem with regulation in a lot of sectors, whether it's energy transport, drones, for example, um, is that the technology is moving so fast that the regulation just can't keep up and healthcare is a perfect example of that so Anesta we are running a very successful project at the moment called Flying High which is um, taking an anticipatory regulation look at how we solve the problem of drones I mean we all saw what happened at Gatwick over Christmas with some of our colleagues at Nesta not being able to fly home um, and you know that this kind of thing is going to happen more and more so how can the regulators keep up with how, how fast that the tech is going and um, because if you look at healthcare you've got kind of the medical devices regulations but it really doesn't um, account for all of these different sort of algorithms that are being created at the moment. And I think to, to build on what Ivana said, I think an, an added complexity around the data piece and especially to do algorithms is, is looking at the quality of the data that's put into these algorithms in the first place. So there's been lots of media stories about um, biases being in, um, unintentional biases being put into algorithms by the quality of the data that's been put in. So there's a very famous saying, garbage in, garbage out. So the, the, um, the algorithms are only as good as the quality of the data that's put in so there's a was a, some very famous cases in the states to do it racial profiling so um uh, pers- uh black people were getting less um um were not being uh, let out on parole uh, as much as white people because the algorithms were saying they are more likely to reoffend and that's because historically the data that was put it was being put into these algorithms was saying this and the same thing with policing neighborhoods in the states as well so there's lots of controversy about that yeah, yeah. and then and, and so if you look, if we apply that to a healthcare setting as well, especially um, in social care a lot of um, local authorities at the moment are using um, algorithms to um, to predict when families are going to go into crisis and help them before they get there but some of these algorithms could have bias in terms of the types of families that they're going to then say well in one year's time you're going to be in crisis and, and we have to really think about the ethical nature of this and what kind of data we're, we're using. Um, yeah, so I think I think um, the quality of the data is a massive thing. And, and also when we think about bias, and Ivan, I'm sure, can pick up on this point, we need to think about who is creating these algorithms. So if we think about the um, uh, artificial intelligence industry, it's overwhelmingly male. Um, and I think Ivan will talk about her women and diversity and algorithms and how it's very, very important that we get more women working in this area. And also at Nesta, we're really thinking about... Um, uh, if we're creating these these algorithms, we need to make sure that they are um, they are accountable and that somebody can be held account. So we can't just say, well, the robot said that this was the case and then somebody died. So this is a, a huge issue we need to look at. So um, people will say, well, I, we don't understand how the algorithms work and, and how the machines will learn. They'll go off and do their own things. But that's, that's not good enough. We need to have... Um, uh, algorithms that are going that are as understandable that can be brought to account and that somebody can be held a company or an individual can be held responsible if if they make mistakes which ha- happens all the time there's a very interesting uh, case study I was reading in the states about um it's about this the the causation but 
you can correlate between bits of data that are not necessarily true. So there was a case about an algorithm was predicting that people who were diagnosed with asthma, who then went on to get pneumonia, um, were did, did better. So the algorithm um, predicted from that that people with asthma um, get better from pneumonia quicker. But the opposite is actually the case. The reason why the data was saying that is because people who got asthma, they were fast-tracked. If they got pneumonia, they're like, well, you're going to have a massive problem. We need to get you treatment urgently. So you really need to look at what, how the data is making its own, how the, the machines are making their decisions about these and are they actually, is it just uh, causation or is it correlation? And medicine is full of these kinds of uh, unexpected um, combinations of things, aren't they? You know, it's very when, complex. when we consult our doctor or a health professional or even our pharmacist that we know well, you know, they will know things like our living conditions and maybe if we're going through a breakup or we're really stressed about you know work or something like that, which can all you know they're all very intangible things, aren't they? Which uh, add up to uh, affecting our our health and how how best we treat that. Are, is AI ever going to be able to do that? And Again, yeah, if it's if we simply just press the button or rely on that and, you know, the health service is very pressured, the temptation to do that is enormous. Is it? Are we going to run into problems here? What do you think? Um, it's a very interesting question. Um, so I don't think we can un- underestimate the human oversight. And I think if we think of machines that will act completely independently, first of all, we're not there yet. And second, I mean, we're not creating this sort of general artificial intelligence of robots completely replacing a GP. We're not nowhere near that. Um, But also um, is we need to, I always think artificial intelligence and machines will augment our human capabilities. So we can't lose track of the human oversight. Um, So, of course, the GP will remain a GP and will need to remain a GP. They will be able to interpret the the data, interpret and, and and validate the outcome of a particular decision made by a machine. But of course, the GP will know what kind of individuals they're dealing with. Other sectors are a bit more complicated. I mean, they take, for example, um, a radiographer. Um, the radiographer do like artificial intelligence very much because their ability to read a scan is much greater, thanks to artificial intelligence, than the human eye. And that caused another question, which is what's going to happen to medical skills? And how do we ensure that medical skills remain up to date? And radiography, I always think, is a great example because what's going to happen to radiography as a skill if the machine can read much better the um, um, the, the, the scan? I wanted to pick up on something that was said before, which I think is, is you're touching on the algorithms and the... Um, the data element. Now, I don't know, just keen to know your opinion about something, which is the, of course, the data quality is very important, not just the data quality, but also the weight in that you put to the data. And a lot of mistakes happen because you don't, when you introduce large data sets and large sort of training data, the weightings are not correct. So they don't take into account um, different considerations and therefore the output of the algorithm then it's wrong. And correctly, was mentioned, we need to be able, these algorithms need to be, to some extent, explainable. Although explainability is a very hard concept because I would never be able to understand how an algorithm in in healthcare works, nor do I think I would want to as a citizen. Um, I would want to have a sort of the 
understanding that the specific algorithm has gone through some form of scrutiny. If I go on an airplane, I don't want to understand how the airplane works, but I want to know that that plane is following some processing, some rules, and has a regulator that goes there and, and says, this is what needs to be happening on a plane. But I don't personally want to know how their plane works because I wouldn't be able to understand it. But I want to know that their plane has been through checks and controls. So the big question mark is around who performs these checks and controls. Um, do we need the burden of another, yet another regulator to perform these checks and controls? Do we need, my opinion, for example, is that we do need some algorithmic impact assessments that need to be mandatory when it comes to things so important, so important like health, where the decision can have a huge impact on your life, if anything, death, to make sure that some due process has been followed to come to a particular decision. And that brings me to another issue, which is data quality. If the principle governing healthcare data is consent, and if individuals withdraw their consent, how do we ensure data quality in the NHS, in health data, if a lot of people don't want their data to be shared? So we're talking about citizen control in some ways here, aren't we? And I mean, I think that's a, it's one of the crucial elements to this whole uh, argument, which is how do we put people at the at the centre of um, regulating these things, giving permissions or switching them on or off um, for, for various things, and 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 the development um, of these things? Because if be, if the patient and I suppose the healthcare professional is taken out of the equation, that's when we get into dangerous territory. Yeah, right? I absolutely agree. And Nigel, um, at Health Lab, our, our mantra, as it were, is, is people-powered health. So really put the person and the citizen at the heart of everything that we do and at the heart of the centre of their own their own care. So a couple of ways that we've been thinking about how to address these challenges, which I completely agree with Havana, are, um, is really embedding embedding co-production and co-design into into these technologies. Okay, buzzword alert. Buzzword, co-design. I mean, I mean that's what basically that about, like? it's, It basically looks like it is involving people in, in the design design of these of these technologies and artificials and algorithms and that doesn't mean to say that we all need to become data scientists and, and experts on AI but in involving and not just sort of doing a consultation on a focus group but really involving involving people in the when you're designing your technology to see and um, how they're designed what data you're going to be used or how, how are people comfortable about their data so we're doing a, a project up in Scotland at the moment with the Scottish government which is very exciting called the healthier lives data fund and our technologies that we'll be funding from April they've all been asked to really embed the, this idea of co-design so really truly working with the people that are going to be the end users of these technologies to make sure that it's it's what people want that they understand how they're going to be used and how it's going to impact on their lives as well so I think that's a big one I think the second one that we're super interested in as well is how do we how do we really engage the public in dialogues about this thing, these things? Because they're really, they're really important, um, and especially when it comes down to things like consent. So obviously now, since May last year, we've got the national opt out, so people can um, opt out of their healthcare data being shared. But I think it goes um, more deeply than that. And um, if you look at consent on on any kind of privacy 
policies that we sort of sign up to all the time. They would, if you printed them out, um, the researchers they would probably fill, as you know, the entire street outside or um, where we're filming, the, uh, recording this today. So, so nobody actually goes and reads these things. But is that in healthcare? That's not true informed consent. How do we, um, how how do we try and um, in, innovate in this to, so people can actually really understand what they are signing up to and how their data will be used? I think that's really important. And our inclusive innovation team and Esther doing a, a great around of work around public engagement and um, to in, in, involve people who would never think about things like innovation or consent or data or algorithms and um, using things like games so it's been a really it's a really interesting piece of work so I think I think there are things we can do to involve people without us all becoming knowing exactly um, how that plane works and having to fly the plane ourselves now that all sounds great it sounds very thorough and it sounds very sensible indeed but to a layman like me that sounds like quite a long process and I, I guess my anxiety as a, a user of the health service and aware that these things are evolving massively is that that's we're going to be overtaken by the the rapidity of the technology and also the desperateness of the NHS to cope with all of these building backlogs and all of those sorts of things and are they going to just grab for the first thing that comes off the shelf I think I mean pick up again on Nevada's point I think we, there is definitely a role for regulation here and and whether it's anticipated regulation or just good old-fashioned regulation um we this this is too important to leave the tech giants up to do whatever they want and then use our data sell it back to us this is you know we're talking about people health and people's lives it's the thing that is fundamental to all of us we all have health and um, the NHS is the most trusted I think organisation in the UK and it's really important that we maintain that trust and maintain that transparency and it's, it's really challenging because the, the, the NHS workforce, let alone the, our citizens and patients, you know, do not necessarily have the skills and the tools to know um, how, you know, algorithms, et cetera, are being developed. But it's something that they are addressing. So um, Eric Tolpel led a review last year of workforce skills in the NHS that's going to be hopefully published very, very soon. And this is one of the big areas that, that has been considered is how do we start to bring, you know, everybody from frontline staff all the way up to the systems leaders along on this journey to not say being you know artificial intelligence experts but no, knowing enough to be able to question and push back when they're working with technology companies and working more in partnership with them and really create a shared understanding of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and bring the public along on that dialogue as well i mean the concept of trust is very important isn't it especially in in, in the energy i mean sadly what we are seeing over the last couple of years is it's been an erosion of trust in relation to of course that sort the digital, uh, particularly because of the Facebook stuff, particularly in in uh, um, Cambridge so, Analytica. Ca- exactly, I mean, the, we're all a bit queasy yeah, about technology and how it's being used exactly, at the moment, aren't we? Exactly. So the, of course, that has a, has a huge impact because, in especially in relation to micro targeting and being continuously tracked and followed in everything that you do, um, and also because of receiving particular message because. You are, I don't know, they, they, they see on Facebook that you're in a manic state. And, and uh, so to an extent, uh, your on life, online life tells you more about your medical conditions than the NHS does. And we have to come to terms with that. Who knows the most about your medical conditions is Google. Because when you have a particular problem, the first thing that you do is you Google it. So Google owns a huge amount of data and information about your health, about our health. And this is quite scary. So there is a problem here around sort of trust in the digital. 
in the NHS is very interesting one because the bottom that was absolutely true. I mean the the basis of the NHS is trust is trust in your doctor, trust in that. This is very very important. We really need to leverage that that uh, um, that trust. Um, I also think that as we are developing all these technologies and we are investing in ethical and ethics, the Centre for Data Ethics, the other Lovelace Institute, the work, amazing work that UNS are doing, as we develop all this, I think we need to start making some clear distinctions about when is AI for the common good and when it isn't. In the NHS, in my view, AI is for the common good, it's for everyone's health. So... I think we need to engage with patients saying we're introducing this technology because we want you to be better. We want you to live longer and better and introduce some form of maybe a data trust where the third party can access information if they want to. And all this is tracked. So we know exactly where our data is going. We know and try to say we are not Cambridge Analytica. We want the data to be used for the common good. And there isn't a better moment as it is now to start saying this is a good use of artificial intelligence and technology. And we, the NHS, we're not Cambridge Analytica. We're not going to share this data for with the insurance company that, that, that then can use it for something completely different. And give citizens the possibility and patient to monitor where their data is going, having transparency at the heart of it. And sometimes I even think, do we need to um, introduce a form of, you know, a form of... Um, sort of um, the trust-based system whereby you, your data, it's not longer something that you own. Like, I don't own my data. I am my data. So the fact that I have a problem, I don't know, with, with my hand, it's not personal data, but it's me. So to an extent, treating a patient and treating a patient's data is exactly the same thing. Is exactly the same thing. So the NHS and, and talking about the use of big data and algorithms in the NHS, I think it's a fantastic way for us as a society to rethink about what how what do we think about personal data, what is personal data, what is privacy, what is privacy in this century? Can it still be an individual right and, and a store ownership in 2019? In a world where we are constantly online, can we still think in terms of consent, not consent? Or maybe do we have to rethink it in terms of privacy, common good? And, you know, so I think a major focus on NHS, AI, health is fantastic to really rethink the concept of privacy, trust and the common good. I think it's a really interesting area, and um, we, we're about to repub- uh, publish a report on um, healthcare data and how people feel about their data. But if you, if you look at some of, um, if you look at what's actually happening with our, our data in the NHS at the moment, huge amounts of our data is already collected about us and, and is shared already. But obviously, the personal stuff is is stripped out. And I think where people, and I think seventy seven percent of people who went when they're surveyed said they're more than happy for their health data to be used for, um, for making the NHS better. For their, obviously the individual care, things like that. Where they get uncomfortable is when it's being shared with researchers and where they get even more uncomfortable, I think only 19% said they would be happy, is where it gets shared with private companies. So on the face of it, that, that seems intellectually to be, be correct. But we're, but we if we 
um, maintain these positions, we're probably going to be missing out on a lot of innovation because the NHS just can't innovate that quickly. So I think um, Adana's idea about data trust, data collaboratives is something we're really looking at very strongly at Nesta. It's, it's, I think it's a really interesting idea. And it's this idea that um, we can have the, the, this data um, held in um, um, collaborative or cooperative um, trusted safe havens and that can be um, that researchers or even um, technology companies could access but under very very stringent rules if you look at what Genomics England have done with their 100,000 Genomes, uh, Genomes project they have um, created one of the best consent models it's held up there as, as being really excellent and they've created um, this sort of airlock system almost it's not a, a physical airlock as they walk into a room but it, but it's a virtual airlock that if you, you need to get the data out to use it for certain purposes like for example to train an AI algorithm them there are very stringent procedures that's to go through different reviews and things like that so so it's that kind of thing about creating these trusted safe havens for the data that can be used because I do think that I do think we need to work with the private sector with technology companies because they've got they've got the skills they've got the innovation and they can really work in partnership with the NHS but it's a really about um, having it um, safe accountable and creating the shared value so that's coming back to that value point it's not just tech companies like Google and Apple making millions and millions working with the NHS off our data and but actually how we can share that value with the citizens here in the UK. Well of course um, there are so many interesting and big questions around these sorts of technologies but another aspect of technology and how it is helping literally uh, extend people's lives um, is Good Sam uh, and it's a brilliant application where uh, if you are a, a first aider as trained in CPR you can then uh, be alerted to an emergency near where you are and be first on the scene before the emergency uh, services arrive. Um, to explain more, I spoke to Phil Keating from Good Sam. I'm already a enhanced first responder for Northwest Ambulance Service and Northwest Ambulance Service took on the um, the Good Sam app. So any cardiac arrest that they have in their area, they would also put out onto Good Sam. So we're equipped with um, a pager, but obviously I also had the Good Sam app. So uh, earlier on in the year, I was just out shopping, uh, minding my own business, and went to turn right at a set of traffic lights, and I got a Good Sam alert, and it was literally 50 yards away from me where the um, where the emergency was. So instead of turning right at the traffic lights, I turned left, uh, bumped up on the curb, and literally within 30 seconds of receiving the good sam notification i had the guy's shirt cut off i had my defib pads on him and there was ongoing cpr um we shocked him three times um and that resulted in a return of spontaneous circulation so within 30 seconds of getting the alert i was um giving him the exact treatment that he needed apps like the good sam app um it's the only way really that we can kind of enhance what the ambulance service already provide. Luckily, because I carry a defibrillator for work, I, I can also do the second part of that chain of survival as well. And we, we can actually get electricity across the chest early. The other side of the good SAM app is that they are actively mapping every single defib. So even if somebody gets alerted by a good SAM app who doesn't have a defib in their possession, they can see where the closest defib is to them. So if that means them diverting 30 seconds to a local shop, to collect the defib before they go and um, administer treatment to that patient, that is, is what is going to absolutely turn things around for them. So they're, they're in train stations. Many of the, uh, the largest shops have signed up to, to, to have one and many of the businesses. This isn't a thing that relies on sort of good SAM staff to map the defibs because it's kind of 
open forum. If you see a new defib that pops up, you can take a photograph of it, give a, a brief description of its location. Most importantly, it's hours of availability. So is it is it outside in the public area where you can get to 24 hours a day? Or does it belong to a business that only opens nine to five? You submit all that information to Good Sam app, and within a couple of hours, it's actually logged and appears on the Good Sam app as an available defibrillator. So, if that person's cardiac arrest has been alerted by somebody using the alerter app, it will also start to live stream their phone. So, as a responder, I can look and see what's going on at the scene from kind of scene safety point of view. So, I can actually see what's happening at the scene before I've um, decided that yes, I will go and try and assist that person. And if you think of where we're going, kind of drone technology, maybe in the future that the, the, there could be some kind of inclusion that if you're not close to a defib that's available, then maybe a drone could deliver one to your side. It all sounds very, very space age, but if you look back where we were five, ten years ago compared to where we are now, then the next five years is going to be massively interesting. I mean, that's just a really amazing story of how uh, an app, uh, and I know we're not strictly talking about apps today, but, you know, technologies that are using these platforms and things um, are, are literally saving lives. And I suppose it gives the an indication of the, the pace with which these things are, are happening. Good Sam is something which is only, you know, it's, it's taken off around the world, isn't it? Yeah, we're very proud, um, Nigel, of Good Sam at Nesta. They're one of our grantees on our Accelerating Ideas Fund, which is one of our scaling funds at the moment. And they've been a, a huge success. And it's such it's such a simple idea in one, in one sense that any anybody with first aid experience um, can become a first responder on the scene and hopefully save somebody's lives. But now it's um, been integrated into uh, many ambulance trusts, not only in the UK, but also globally as well. And I think um, to date they've saved, I think, well, at least they can correlate. They've definitely saved at least 12 lives, but they've probably saved a lot more as well so it's a fantastic success success story for good sam and for nesta as well uh, absolutely but of course you know coming back to this issue of um how safe is our data how much of that data do we gate towards you know and, and allow it to be used um how optimistic are we uh, are we feeling right now um about the the future because we're seeing uh, literally month by month new things coming out uh, new applications for artificial intelligence um, and uh, and and the simultaneous pressures on our health service and our demands on it to to help us better in more effective ways um, are, are you seeing some great examples um, and how optimistic do you feel about the the future of how we can really control our our own health. I'm really really positive, Nigel. But I'm a very yes. optimistic person. I think, I think with, with things like Cambridge Analytica, I think now think um, questions around data, artificial intelligence, algorithms are actually becoming much more of uh, in the public eye, and but will become more of in in, in terms of public debate as well. And I think our um, the public's view of tech giants and the use of their data is probably at an all-time low, which gives, I think, is a brilliant opportunity then to build up from them. I think we're at that kind of like trough of despair bit in like Crossing the Chasm, if I've read that book, um, which is a brilliant place, I think, to build the future that we want to see. I think up until, you know, the last 10 years, we've kind of left it up to the tech giants and the internet to to, to tell us um, how they're going to build our future. And actually, I think it's time for us now as citizens to, uh, and especially with the NHS, to wrestle back a little bit of 
control and say how we want the future to look like. So I'm positive that this is a good time for, because there's such, there's such potential, you know, healthcare data and the way we use it, it can will totally change healthcare, I predict, in the next 20 years. But we have to make sure that we think of um, citizens and the NHS workforce and putting them first. Yeah, I mean, I feel reasonably optimistic. Um, the reason why I, I mean, I love technology and I think it's really, it can do a lot of good. The reason why I say reasonably um, is because, um, because I think, um, because I think it's time for us to mobilise politics so they do get a grip on what's happening and it's not the case yet. Um, I have followed and and with despair the Facebook Cambridge Analytica situation with despair and the despair has come from not just by the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica by, but by the inability of politics to get a grip on that and just say it's time to change uh, and we can't just blame Facebook of course they've done some naughty they have some naughty practices but we can't just blame Facebook we need to make sure that government um, understands the disruptive nature of this technology and is prepared to come to terms with it and introduce some regulation that does not stifle innovation but actually helps making sure that AI is for the common good, is constrained by our human and shared values. And I think this is the time for us as citizens to become more empowered, but also to say, come on, politics, get a grip on it. There is a life beyond Brexit. <laughs> so we need to mobilise. We need to make it our business to be involved. And we need to call uh, to account some of those uh, big uh, infrastructure people and, uh, and, and politics to make sure that the future is brighter for us all. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Ivana Bartoletti uh, and uh, Sinead McManus. Thank you. For Thanks, Nigel. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks for listening to Future Curious. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast and rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us grow our audience. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit nesta.org.uk forward slash futurecurious to find out more and check out the other episodes in the series. Thank you and stay curious. Future Curious is a Chalk and Blade production. The producers were Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter and Lily Ames. Original music is by Jed Flood. <laughs>